0: Alright, Hebrews chapter 6 this morning, if you would stand one more time with me and we'll read our passage. You probably might be able to quote it by now. We have been here for, I think this is the fifth sermon in this passage. And as I looked at this over the, for the last several years, I never would have thought I'd have got that many messages out of this. But um, we are prayerfully moving on this morning. Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptism and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. This we will do if God permit. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd bless this time of... The preaching of your word. God, I pray that your people would be encouraged. I pray your people would be strengthened. I pray, Father, that you would even offer rebuke where necessary. We know, God, that your word goes forth and it accomplishes exactly what you desire for it to accomplish. And so, Father, we pray that your will would be done this morning. We ask that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. God, give us hearts to Um, to to look on others and and have compassion towards them. And Father, cause us to obey you. I pray that you'd be honored and glorified this morning. Amen. Well, for the last few weeks, actually the last several weeks, we've studied these verses to understand the importance of spiritual maturity. That's not an option. Spiritual maturity is not an option, but it's an imperative. Now, the option is... If you do not grow in grace and knowledge, if you do not grow in, in this, spiritual, uh, this spiritual maturity, you will remain stagnant. Someone even asked, why the attention to such depth and such detail? And I would say that it's for your benefit. It's not for the pastor or the preacher to get up and display his knowledge. If all I'm doing is displaying knowledge and not exhorting you, then what profit is it? And so these attention to detail, this attention to depth, is not to wow you, it's to encourage you to grow. Now, my response would simply be that if God has taken such care to reveal himself to us through His word, then it would behoove us to study all the details that we can. One of the things that i've I've tried to do down while we're, since we've been down here and and working now with with Lee and and getting to do some of the things that I do and even visiting with y'all is to ask questions. Uh, Cows is not something that I've ever messed with before outside of eating a ribeye at a steakhouse. Um, And so I want to know as much as I can. Well, if I don't ask detailed questions, then I'm just going to get generalizations. And that's the same thing with God's Word is that we need to commit ourselves to the details of Scripture And it's for the sake of spiritual maturity, so that we would obey God more. The more more I study this great book, the more exciting it becomes. And it's the same thing with the Christian, that the more you study, the more you obey, the more you see God work, the more exciting it becomes. Now my, my desire, I would be honest in saying that, is not for you to be amazed at the depth of the sermons I preach. Uh, It's not for me for, and look, it's, uh, there's a tendency for people who, for instance, I've not been to seminary. There's a tendency for people who haven't been to seminary to try to compensate and make it to show that they didn't need to go. But that, that ought to be just a display of the gift that God has given in teaching his word. But I would ask this question, are you amazed at at Christ? Because that's the whole point of preaching in such detail is that you be in awe of who God is and awe of what He has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that motivates us to pursue Him with greater fervency. The more we know about Him, the more we understand who He is and what He has done, the greater we want to know know even more. Folks, my my heart longs to see our church bear fruit of the gospel in our lives. Paul, when he wrote the book of Colossians, praised the Colossian church for the fruit that was displayed. And the very first thing that he mentions is their love for the saints. And folks, if I desire to see gospel fruit in our lives and in the ministry of this church, then my love for you demands that we preach in great detail and great depth. Our desire for you to cherish, love, read, and study God's Word as you never have before. I mean, this book is not just given to us for for us to go throw on our desk somewhere. I I was looking yesterday, I've done some work in my study and and I'm rearranging my study a little bit, and I, I, I don't know how many Bibles I have, probably ten Bibles. But having all those Bibles does nothing for me if I don't commit myself to know what's in that book. God's Word will sustain us in the darkest of night and in the most violent of storms in our life. But it can only sustain us if we give ourselves to know it rightly. God's Word is not just a book of stories and fables and parables. It's the heart and the mind of the living God. Folks, I desire for you to sanctify the Lord God in your heart so that you will be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within you. If that hope is within you. That's the purpose is that we could give a, a, a testimony of the faith that we profess. If we're going to move on to perfection, the, mature, the goal of maturity, we need to settle these foundational doctrines that we've covered thus far. If you're going to move on in spiritual maturity, you can't be a like a, a paper boat in the ocean that sunk, sinks when it gets wet, but that it just is driven by whatever way the tide is going. I remember one of the first, uh, in early on when I was working in the, in, in the Gulf of Mexico on those platforms, this guy had a, uh, a, a Coke can. He was just standing there poking holes in it with his pocket knife. I thought, man, what are you doing? He says, check this out. And if you looked at the ocean, it was going one way. And he threw the can overboard. And all of a sudden, the can started working against the waves. Well, what I couldn't see is the tide beneath the waves that was carrying that can in an opposite direction. Folks, the Word of God settling these doctrines will cause you to be able to go against the waves of popularity. It will cause you to navigate those waters. Understand that if you are genuinely born again in our salvation doctrine, that was an act of God. That that was an act of God. Not of your own doing. And that's exactly what Ephesians 2.8.9 is telling us. That it's so that you will not be able to boast. If you profess to know Christ, if you profess to be a Christian, and you're boasting in yourself and your ability to understand the gospel, then you are in sin. Folks, this is about God's work in us. This morning... By God's grace, we're moving on in this passage. I don't know, it, it, to me it's almost, it, not almost, it is exciting when I go back and look at a passage that I've been preaching and I begin to see things that I didn't see before and I know it's, it's beneficial for us to move on and so I don't want us to get so bogged down in this passage that we neglect the rest of Scripture. But these are foundational truths, foundational doctrines that we're going to conclude with this morning and they build one upon the other. One is not important than the other, but they build one upon the other. I don't believe these doctrines as we've laid out in salvation and in the church last week and now in time this week or eschatology, if you so choose. They're not matters of importance, but we see if you get one wrong, you're going to get the others wrong. And by the way, if you start with salvation, if you get that doctrine wrong, you can forget the other two. Now, End-time doctrine is a doctrine that some people just marvel over. Um, There are some people that just spend all of their time studying it. some pastors. There's a tendency for some pastors to shy away from it because of the controversy that it causes. And that was me early on in my ministry, pastoral ministry. I, I just didn't want to touch it. And part of it was because I had questions that had not yet been answered about some things that I'd been taught... And I just wasn't settled in that. But in studying the Scripture, and I'll tell you what helped me even more so, is over the last, what, seven, eight months of of studying it on Wednesday nights here and just seeing the Scripture over and over again and teaching it has helped me to settle it. It's a doctrine, though, that by some of our Southern Baptist elites has been deemed unimportant. As a matter of fact, one president of one of our seminaries said it's a third-tier doctrine. Well, if the Bible has spoke clearly on something, don't you think we need to know what the Bible has to say about that particular topic? Especially in regards to the return of Christ. And if it's so unimportant, then why is so much of the Scripture about the second return of Christ? Jesus in His own ministry, in, in Luke 21 said, Take heed that this day not catch you unaware. After giving signs of the season of when he would return, should we not desire to know specifically what the Bible has to say about it? What if that day is upon us right now? Look, I pray every day for God to bring a revival to us. What if this is it? folks there are, there are countries being shut down to the gospel. What if this is we're starting to see that net close? What if this what if we are right now living in the very last days that we've read about? First of all, are you ready? Have you been reconciled to God through Christ? And if you have not, I would beg you to call upon God now. Wait, delay no longer. Don't wait anymore. Call upon Him now. But as if you profess to be a Christian, are you ready? Have you been living as though Jesus would would return at any moment? Now we're not going to go into the details that I went through uh, over the last six or eight months. Matter of fact, I forgot to hand them out. But there are some outlines on the back table. Um, Thank you, Brent. (laughs) <laughs> and it's just—it's not as detailed as it was last week. What I've done is just summarize this passage in an outline. And, and the first—the the, two of the first subpoints, two of the first, two of the three subpoints on point number one—we've covered. And, and this this series, we well, guess we can call it a series, five sermons, has been principles of spiritual maturity. Principles of spiritual growth. And the first one is, you must have a solid foundation. If you don't have a solid foundation, you are not going to move on to maturity. As a matter of fact, you're probably going to crumble. Your faith will crumble. When you think about a house. Use that analogy again. If you don't have a solid foundation when you build a house, what's going to happen? That, that foundation is going to start settling out even more so than it would if you prepared the foundation rightly. And it's going to cause cracks and things to start getting out of whack. And before long, you have a house that is in disrepair and probably would cost you more money to repair the house than it would to build another house. Right? That's how it is in the Christian life, folks. We have to have this solid foundation. So for us to even move on to perfection, the foundation must be laid. And he gave these three doctrines. Salvation, the repentance from dead works. Dead works are those things that are not done by faith. Those things that if we continue in them will lead to eternal judgment and eternal death. And faith toward God. Faith is a gift given to us by God. And then the second one concerning the church, the teaching on baptisms. Number one, baptism does not save. Number two, it is a testimony of your public profession of faith in Christ. That's all it is. If you're going to talk about your baptism more than you talk about your profession of faith, we may have a problem. Because when someone, well, I've asked people before, give me your testimony, tell me how God saved you. Well, I got baptized and I went, quit going from this church and started going to that church. I asked a deacon that one time. And his wife had to tell me things that led to his conversion. He could not give a credible testimony. So baptism doesn't save. It's just simply a public profession. And then the laying on of hands. Who do we choose as pastors and deacons? And so today... We're in this end time, this resurrection and eternal judgment. And then the the next two points in this outline you have before you, which we'll get to today, is moving on to maturity requires motion. You're not going to grow if you're just seated in one place or staying in one place. And so that requires diligence to study God's Word. It requires zeal and obedience. And then the last point we'll cover is if God permits, ultimately our growth, our spiritual maturity, Depends on God allowing us to move on to perfection. He's not going to allow the slothful. He's not going to allow those who are lazy. And so we must submit to His Word, to His will, and to His way. So let's look at this doctrine of eschatology. As I begin to look at this a little bit more in detail this week, it was curious to me that He would only give us resurrection and eternal judgment. These two aspects of end times. It's interesting that he would choose to emphasize these two. Now, I believe, I believe our belief concerning the end can be summed up in the resurrection and eternal judgment. There will be a resurrection and there will be eternal judgment. Either you will be resurrected again unto life or you will be resurrected unto eternal damnation. Now, what about this resurrection? This is, understand, our Christianity, whether you realize it or not, our Christian faith depends on the resurrection's truth or not. It's foundational to the doctrine of Christianity. And this gave Jews what they could not attain in their work righteousness and empty Judaism. The sure hope of blessed resurrection in Jesus and the certainty that they would be justified in the eternal judgment. Now if you think about this, there are religions out there that require you to work for favor with their God. Those are dead works that leads to eternal damnation. But yet the resurrection of Christ guarantees our salvation. Folks, this would be a major concern of any religion that teaches gaining access to God through works. You can do nothing to satisfy the wrath and judgment of God outside of coming to Christ in faith. What hope do we have if our eternal destiny relies on our performance in this life? I told the deacons this week, I said, I know there's a sinner that stands behind this pulpit week in and week out. What hope do I have as a desperate sinner if Christ did not come out of the grave? Folks, we're getting ready to celebrate the resurrection And while we like the chocolate and all that stuff that comes with us, let's remember what the importance of this is about. This is where our hope lies. It's it's a foundation of Christian doctrine. Look, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul Paul spoke to this. First, uh, verse 19 of chapter 15. Look what he says. Simple statement. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. If all our hope is wrapped up in Christ only in this life and not the life to come, we're a miserable lot of people. I mean, if, if this is it, and there is no afterlife, what a miserable life that is. However, if our hope is in Christ, and by the way, that word hope means the promise of something good with the expectation of receiving it. The promise that we received, we read this morning, that incorruption, that, that, that corruptible will put on incorruption, And the beauty of of what Katie was talking about, of the heart that is broken, guess what? It won't have band-aids on it in the resurrection. It will be a new heart. And by the way, in regeneration, when God takes our heart of stone, He, He gives us a new heart. The resurrection is primary to our Christian faith. It hangs on the resurrection of Christ. Jesus taught this doctrine of resurrection by claiming it for himself. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The apostles made this teaching the foundation of their gospel proclamation. Look at Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> and this, you know the sad reality that we're faced with, and I, I, I'll make this confession readily and, and ashamedly. There's not enough messages preached on the resurrection. I mean, think about it. Most resurrection messages are preached when? Once a year on Easter. I don't ever remember hearing a message preached on the resurrection outside of Easter. But yet that is the bedrock of our, of our Christian faith. It is foundational. It is key. It, without the resurrection, guess what? Our faith falls apart. We have no hope. We have no cause to trust in Christ. We have no cause to trust in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, we could even make claim to God that He is unfaithful in His Word if the resurrection were false. But if the resurrection is true, and it is, then we have great hope in Christ. Look at Acts 1.22. beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, talking about his ascension, and his resur- oh, and then he goes on to talk about the resurrection, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. Now, what he's talking about here is the, the calling of an apostle. The apostle had to be an eyewitness of the risen Christ. He had to have seen Jesus post-resurrection. And that's what makes Paul so unique. Paul said he was born out of time, and yet he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. It's seen in other passages. Uh, Look over at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. He raised him up from the dead. God rolled the stone away. Jesus walked out of that tomb. He raised him from the dead. The author of Hebrew and there's there's multiple other scripture in Acts that we could look at. The author of Hebrews also refers to this doctrine directly. Go to Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter eleven. In verse thirty-five, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. We only have a better resurrection because Christ was resurrected. And then again, he mentions it in uh, Acts. Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter two. Um, look at verse fourteen and fifteen. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15, And delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject in bondage. Look, our ultimate delivery, our ultimate escape is through the resurrection. It's through the resurrection. So this resurrection is a vital doctrine. It is of vital importance. Christ, in first go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be there quite a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. Now our, our resurrection is dependent upon Christ's resurrection. Notice verse 23 of, of 1 Corinthians 15. But every man in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, Afterward, they that are Christ at His coming. He's a first fruits of the resurrection, and and what we see with Christ now, we know that He was without sin prior to His death. But what we see in Him that He was raised incorruptible, that we will be raised incorruptible. We will be raised uh, immortal. See, in His in His humanity, He was mortal. He He died, right? So uh, we are mortal as well. We die. But when we are raised in the resurrection, we will not die. Now, do you think this is a doctrine that is exclusive to the New Testament? Well, let's find out. Go to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm chapter 16. And verse 10. This is a Messianic psalm speaking of Christ. Notice what verse 10 says. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that Jesus would not stay in the grave and rot. Look at uh, Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Bible drill time here. Don't remember Bible drills? Hold your Bible up. Got to find a Bible verse pretty quick. I was never that fast. Ezekiel 26, verse 19. The dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is on the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. We see the idea of resurrection. Um, Let's go to uh, Daniel chapter 12. This is probably uh, the most prominent um, in, in the Old Testament. The most clear for sure. It was even predicted in Job 14 verse 12. And Daniel twelve two is a clear prediction of the bodily resurrection of the godly and the ungodly for the final judgment. As that will be our next point. Look at verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. What's going on? The dead in Christ, those who have died, who are in the kingdom of God, will be raised unto life. And those that have not come to God by faith, they will be raised to spend eternity in judgment. There is an erection of life and a resurrection of death. This is a clear prediction of what is to come. And we see this in Matthew twenty-five and in John five as well. Now, this this resurrection over the history of Christianity has been denied by some. Um, just you don't have to go to, go there. I'll mention it. Acts twenty-three eight. The Sadducees were a religious group that we read about in the in the New Testament. They denied the resurrection. Um, in denying the resurrection, they also denied the afterlife. And that makes logical sense, right? That if you deny the resurrection, then you're going to deny the life hereafter. Holding that the soul perished at death and therefore denying any penalty or reward after the earthly life. In other words, you live this life, you do what you do, you die, and it's over with. To that, we have to ask, then what purpose did God create man? And specifically, to what purpose did God create you? If there is no afterlife, if there is no judgment or eternal reward, then what is God's purpose in doing anything? And the purpose is that He would get the glory from beginning to end. Then we see resurrection is promised. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Begin reading in verse 41. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. The body goes in the ground, it rots, it decays, it dies, but it is raised incorruptible. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Now, let me make make this clear. We're not going to be a bunch of spirits flying around in heaven. We are going to have this this body. Matter of fact, the scripture tells us we will know as we are known. I think what you see right here will be what you see in heaven. With the exception that it will be immortal and it will be incorruptible. I I will be able to see as I've never seen before in all my life with both of my eyes. And, and you think about the defects that we have in our body. You will be able, you will have a body that is whole. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. God breathed into him. The last, Adam, was made a quickening spirit. Folks, the resurrection is promised to us throughout the Scripture, and that's where our hope is. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, because God has declared it in His Word, and because we have seen the work of of, of Him in our life, that He's taken our heart of stone, given us our heart of flesh, put His Spirit within us, has caused us to love the things that we once loathed, and to loathe the things that we once loved, we have the hope that this wicked, sinful, depraved body will one day put on incorruption and will no longer sin. Folks, now, if you don't get excited about that, if you get more excited over the streets of gold than you do the reality and the promise of living without sin for eternity, then what are you longing for more? So this is a promise throughout the Scripture. But you know there's something else that's promised throughout the Scripture. Going back to Hebrews is eternal judgment. Eternal damnation. Look what he says in verse 3, or the end of verse 2. Of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Let me say this in regards to eternal judgment. This could could sum this up. If you want to write down Acts 24-25 and look at that later, you can. I'm not going to give you any more scriptures on eternal judgment other than to say this about judgment. Your sins have either been paid for on the cross of Christ or your sins will be paid for by you personally for eternity in hell. That's the summation of eternal judgment. Is that there will be a reckoning one day. God will judge those who have cursed Him. God will judge those who have violated His law. God will judge those who have rejected Him. And that will not be anything pretty. It will not be languishing in this middle state for eternity. It will be in torment. Hey, think, about it. think about it this way. You know what God's judgment is? Think about it this way. And the reason it comes to mind is I saw an article this morning about a guy from our area. You think about a child molester, a pedophile. But he has to satisfy that urge. But imagine having an urge that you cannot satisfy. What kind of judgment that would be. You think about a thief, think about someone else, that they cannot flesh their, their desire out, that they are condemned forever. Their judgment by God. And look, it's not hell is not the absence of God. It is the absence and it is the absence of God's grace and God's mercy, and it is the presence of his eternal judgment and His eternal wrath. That's eternal judgment. Now let's move on to our second point. So we've laid this solid foundation. And look, if as I study the Scripture and prepare for sermons, every sermon that I preach falls under one of those three doctrines. Either salvation, either the doctrine of the church and how we operate, or um, of, eternal, of the doctrine of the end times. Now, if we're going to move on to perfection, we have to lay a solid foundation. There has to be a solid foundation laid. But we also, moving on, requires motion. A body of water that grows stagnant doesn't move. Right? Like you go to a pond, you can tell ponds where, there's, where the water moves and is aerated because there's life around that pond. Have you ever walked around a body of water that had no existent life around it and had nothing to give you evidence that there was life within that pond? If you'll notice, that that pond was not aerated either by rain or by artificial means. And therefore, life could not live within that pond. Folks, it's the same thing as a Christian. You're either going to grow or you're going to die on the vine. You're either going to get nutrients from God's Word, you're either going to get life from God's Word, or you are going to die on the vine. By the way, Jesus cursed an olive tree that didn't produce fruit. You want to know eternal judgment? Is that you professed to be a Christian all your life and you really weren't. You were saying, Lord, Lord. And he says, depart from me. What kind of judgment is that for eternity? Thinking in your mind, I've done all these things. i followed the formula. I've done all this. And how, how am I not a Christian? How am I not one of God's own? Well, you didn't come to him in faith. So moving on requires that we move. It requires uh, uh, movement from one place to another. Like if you're going to go on a vacation somewhere, it requires moving from Monte County to wherever you're going. Right? Well, we went and saw my parents a couple weeks ago. It required us moving from Texas on to Alabama. Now we didn't move there permanently. We came back, but nonetheless, we had to move to that other location. Now, with the Christian, you're either moving forward or you're moving backward. Because stagnation does not happen in Christianity. You're going to move one way or the other. Newton's first law of motion is often stated as this. An object at rest tends to what? Come on, science geeks. Stay at rest, right? Uh, uh, An object in motion tends to... Stay in motion. Let me me illustrate that for you real quick. You ever started running downhill? You ever tried to stop running downhill? What happened? You end up going head over heels, right? You're going to roll. And there's going to come to a point where you stop, but it's probably because you hit something at the bottom of the hill. Now, moving on to maturity requires motion. It requires diligence to study God's Word. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 verse 29 Jesus says take my yoke upon you and learn of me let me ask you this question How do we know how to respond in particular situations if we don't learn of Christ? How do we learn to have a right estimation of ourselves if we don't learn of Christ? Now, experience teaches us a lot, right? I mean, the experience of the Christian faith teaches us a lot. Just like experience in in a particular job teaches you a lot. But if we don't put that into practice, then it does no good. But where do we, how, how do we learn of Christ? Where do we learn of Christ? Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 15. We all probably know this verse. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word study means to show diligence or earnestness. So what are we doing? We're showing diligence or earnestness when we study the word of God, when we apply uh, skills to learn the scripture. Now, I I realize that Paul is writing explicitly to a pastor. But if we're going to be good Bereans, then we must apply every Christian ought to apply themselves to the word of God. And then you can only do that if you rightly divide. I had a conversation with a a guy this week. Um, He said, yeah, I know everybody has their own interpretation. I said, let's stop right there. I said, every man may have his own interpretation, but the question you need to be asking yourself is does he have God's interpretation? You see, the understanding of Scripture comes from the original intent of the author and the original meaning. We don't get to put... Our, inner, our interpretation onto the Scripture. We have to extract out of the Scripture what it says. And that's what we're striving for. That's what we're working for. And that's what takes great diligence. That's what requires some time and prayer. And that's help that helps you to move on to perfection. It's going to require zeal and obedience. You have to be zealous for God. You have to be zealous to obey Him. Uh, Obedience is our best teacher. You want to learn to trust God? Obey God. You want to see a, a life that is lived in satisfaction? You trust God. Obey Him. Moving on to perfection, moving on to maturity, is vital to truly worshiping God. Understanding who the God of the Bible is rightly is vital to worshiping God. You know why most people are dead in worship? They don't know God. They don't know the God of the Bible. Look, now I'm not talking about and advocating that we ought to be running around like a bunch of wild people in here. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that our heart is filled with joy and praise erupts out of that heart through our mouth in singing, in prayer, in preaching, in fellowship, why? Because we understand who God is. You can't worship who you don't know. Look, I think I'll be married 27 years in, uh, in October. I thought I loved her then. And I kind of thought I knew her then. But now? Man, it, it, that looked like hate compared to now. There's no other person that I desire to be around. I mean, I love y'all. But if the option is you or Tiffany, guess What? I'm sorry, y'all out. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be with my wife. I love her. Now let me ask you this question. Do you love God to the point that you would forsake someone that close and that special to you? You see, when it says that we need, that we ought to love God and hate our family, it's not saying that we literally hate them, but that our love for God in comparison to our love for them looks like hate. I would say that much of the church is not there. We we often find things to make idols of and we worship that and we love that and we don't worship the God of the Bible. See, we ought to be able to identify with Israel when we look at them in the Old Testament and see how they were rebuked for their adultery and their idolatry. We ought to be able to identify with that. Why? Because as the song says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God that I love. That's exactly where our hearts are. And then thirdly, ultimately, it's dependent upon God. Will God allow us to move on to this state of maturity? This word permit is is a continuous or repeated action. In other words, it's happening over and over and over. It means to allow and not to hinder. So does God hinder our growth? Is He going to not allow us to grow? Our spiritual growth and maturity is dependent upon Him. He will not permit the slothful. If I'm a lazy pastor and I'm lazy in my studies, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get sugar-coated messages. You're going to get, let me back up, you're going to get plagiarized messages. You're going to get me going in my study on Sunday or Saturday evening, typing something into my computer, hitting copy and paste or hitting print and preaching someone else's sermon. Now, I quote a lot of commentaries. I quote a lot of people at times. But if that's all I'm doing, you have no benefit from that. And folks, as a pastor, I get no benefit out of that. I have to preach this to myself before you ever hear it. And if I'm not preaching it to myself and applying it to myself, then it's me telling you to do as I say, not as I do. So He will not permit the slothful. He will not permit the rebellious. You continually rebel against God and His Word and His law, He will not allow you to move on. However, He will permit those who submit to His Word. This right here ought to be our final authority for all matters of faith and practice. We ought not come... When you, and I say this quite often, if you have a question, come to me and talk to me and ask me. Don't get mad at me and leave. Just know this, that when you come, this is what we're going to be going by. We're going to look at the consistency of what God has said in His Word. So He will permit those who submit to His Word. I ask you this morning, do you submit your heart and mind to the Word of God? When you come on Sunday mornings... Do you pray saying, God, help me to submit to your word and what you have said? He will permit those who submit to God's ordained means. You know what God's ordained means of communicating his word is? Pastors and teachers. I was talking to Sunday school this morning that, that, and I say this, and I'm not not one who craves authority and power. understand that. But there was a day and time in our country when authority in general was, was respected, but in particular, the office of pastor. That there was a, a, a particular respect that went to, to someone who said they were a pastor because they knew that man was ordained by God. Teachers as well have the responsibility of communicating the Word of God. Peter Peter said that we are not to lord over God's sheep, but that we are to feed the sheep. And then he will will permit those who submit to his command. You want to know, you want to see you grow in obedience to God? Obey. Obey Him. And he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. We see that in Hebrews 11.6. Let me close with this. Folks, the point of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 8. Begin reading in about 28 and read through the end of the chapter. God's intention in saving you was not for you to love the life you lived before professing Christ. It was not to stay in that life. It is to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is to be... Matter of fact, the word Christian means little Christ. It was a, a term used in a derogative manner in Antioch towards the people there. In Acts, it says they were called Christians first in Antioch. They were calling them Christians to deride them, to mock them, to ridicule them. And yet, for today, we, we take Christian, the, the title Christian on with pride. But we don't understand the original intent. It wasn't for God. The, the word, for us, for, as Christians, we are to imitate Christ. To be like him, to uh, have a, uh, and and humility for us to have a right estimation of ourselves. Look, we can only be like Christ if we are moving on to maturity. You can't be like Christ in a stagnant state, and that is the goal of every believer. Let's pray.